You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right, today we are joined by Dr. Susie Stark, professor of occupational therapy at Washington University in St. Louis and a truly renowned researcher. Thank you for being on the show today, Susie. Oh, Matt, thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here to talk to you. Um, It's been a while, so it's really good to hear your voice. Thank you. I appreciate that. In January of this year, 2022, you presented a grand round session for the Learning Health Systems Rehabilitation Research Network, also known as LEARN, about environmental interventions for fall prevention, which was titled Designing Complex Behavioral Interventions for Implementation. Before we discuss this topic today, could you briefly explain what LEARN is? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I had to um, understand what LEARN was myself. So um, it's a it's a collaboration of some universities, Brown um, University, Boston University, the University of Pittsburgh, um, and they work together to establish the Center on Health Services Training and Research, which has been called COSTAR, which was funded initially by the Foundation for Physical Therapy. Um, LEARN's mission is um, really near and dear to my heart, and I hope to a lot of OTs in the community. It's to improve the quality um, and value of rehabilitation. Um, They foster stakeholder-partnered research, so community-engaged research, um, and they use the learning health system. So they look at at the data that we're already collecting as part of clinical care to see if it can inform how we can do a better job of providing care. Some of the focus um, they have is is really on optimizing implementation and best practices for rehabilitation. And so that's something I'm very interested in as a a researcher is how can we help therapists be better and more effective at their job? So I was um, honored to to speak with them. And I I think uh, your listeners should definitely visit their website. They they archive all of their, their talks and resources. They have a great training program. And they recently have even gotten support from the American Occupational Therapy Foundation so that occupational therapists can be involved as well. So it's a terrific faculty and a terrific group. I encourage your listeners to explore LEARN's website. Absolutely. Thank you so much. LEARN does sound amazing. And I'll be sure to include a link to the LEARN website in our episode description so everybody can check that out. Again, Before we jump into the specifics of this presentation, I I wanted to ask about some of your background as well. What really motivates you to conduct and synthesize research and evidence related specifically to fall prevention? So I I am very interested. Like fall prevention is one of my greatest passions. And I began this line of inquiry um, after I was asked by one of my, my community partners to give a talk on fall prevention. And I another talk on fall prevention. I better do a little bit of exploration. And I was really stunned when I started doing the research to realize what a huge public health concern falls were for older adults. So I guess it's um, depending on which data set you look at, it's 25 to 30 percent of older adults age 65 or older fall every year. Um, Your chance of falling increases with every additional risk factor you add to the mix. So 
if you have no risk factors, you have a, a one in a 25% chance of falling. If you have three or four risk factors, you have like an 80% chance of falling in a, in a one-year period of time. And those folks that are at high risk for falling, those are the folks that a lot of uh, occupational therapists uh, meet and treat and uh, get to interact with on a daily basis. So fall prevention became really, really important to me. Um, and what I found was we didn't have a lot of really useful, um, ready-to-hit-the-road interventions that occupational therapists could deliver right out of the box. Um, physical therapists do a great job with some of the exercise programs that have been developed over the years, but a lot of the research that had been done in occupational therapy interventions, which are really focused on home hazard removal programs, had been done in other countries, and we didn't really have the health systems in place here in the U.S. to support that kind of intervention. So that's why I began my home hazard removal, fall prevention line of inquiry in the U.S. That's wonderful. Thank you for providing that background. Um, it really kind of paints a picture of how big fall prevention is as, as an issue and uh, how important it is to address. Um, how would you describe the evidence linking a person's environment to their risk of falling? So it's pretty stunning. Um, about half of falls are attributed to, to environmental hazards alone. So we, we characterize our fall risk, right? our people falling because of intrinsic factors. They might have had a, a syncope or, uh, you know, they lost consciousness. They might um, suddenly fall or um, was it kind of a, a behavioral activity? Were they climbing up a ladder that maybe they didn't have the strength to climb up? Or was it an environmental cause? Was it a, a slippery floor or um, a stair that didn't have a handrail? Um, and when we look at the causes of falls, about half of falls are caused by environmental hazards alone, not because of something innate in a person that we might try to change, but because of the way the environment's constructed. So that that speaks to me as, a, as an OT interested in, in the environment. The other thing we know is that about half of falls occur in the home. So uh, it makes sense because older adults spend a lot more time at home than they do out in the community than compared to when they were working age adults. But um, to me, as an OT, the home looks like a pretty appealing place to design an intervention to reduce environmental barriers. Um, if half the falls are environmentally caused and half of those falls are occurring in the home, uh, the skill set that we as OTs have to modify the environment suddenly becomes pretty important. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you emphasized that last point of how OT practitioners are kind of uniquely poised to address the environmental factors of, of clients. Is there anything else you'd like to say about how important that is for OT practitioners to, to address and, and include in, in what they do with the people they work with? Oh, absolutely. So my, I, I think it's really important for all OTs to remember that you know, home modifications are not a specialty practice. This is a tool that we all have in our tool, our OT toolbox. And um, I, when I teach students here at Washington University, I try to make sure they know that um, understanding um, how to modify somebody's home, whether they're coming home um, post rehab from a stroke, or if you're trying to make sure they're gonna not have a fall in the community. Home modifications are one of those things that we are so good at because we understand person-environment fit, because we understand PE&O models, and we are so 
so um, well-versed in task analysis and, and compensatory strategies, those are skills that every OT needs to be taking into the field. And um, understanding how to apply them to fall prevention is really important, just because of the statistics that I told you. Absolutely. And I, I do understand how that can be intimidating for a practitioner to do, um, to really begin applying those skills of, of home modification. Um, but you're so right. All practitioners and um, even students, once they're completing their, their programs, are, are poised with these skills to, to be able to make recommendations that, that can be impactful. And to me, I don't know about you, Matt, but I became an OT because I wanted to help people get back to their lives or maintain the lives that they had that were so important to them. And I don't know very many people who live their life in an OT clinic, right? So we want to make sure that the places that we're helping people live their lives are actually the places they want to be. So to me, as a community-based practitioner, I love being in people's homes and getting to know them. And um, and it makes perfect sense to me. I love being able to see the problems before my very eyes. It's actually a lot easier to to uh, figure out how to address your treatment plan when you're there in the context that's giving people trouble versus trying to guess what it might look like in an outpatient clinic. So personally, I'll take a home visit any day. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Home visits where the rubber meets the road, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, Susie, in your presentation, you discussed the idea of designing for implementation. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what this approach is? Sure. Yes. Um, I uh, I came I came to occupational therapy first as a clinician, and I found when I was in the field practicing that I would get frustrated with these amazing interventions that had been developed and, and demonstrated efficacy um, in clinical trials, but were almost impossible for me to implement as a clinician. And it, there were lots of reasons. Maybe um, the intervention was designed in a way that didn't fit within my setting. Um, maybe the, um, the clients that I was serving didn't, it wasn't palatable to them. What, what, um, the intervention offered wasn't what they were willing to accept. Um, but these barriers to implementation stuck with me as I started, uh, creating interventions that I hoped would impact practice. So I, um, early on had a fantastic mentor, um, named Ross Brownson from um, Washington University, who's an expert in dissemination research. And he taught me about designing for dissemination, and I applied those concepts to designing for implementing a new clinical intervention. And so I um, set about identifying what the potential barriers to providing, um, in this case, it was a home hazard removal program might be, and how we might overcome them. So it's designing from the beginning, before we even do any any efficacy or testing or research on this intervention, making sure the therapist wanted it, the therapist could deliver it within their scope of practice, the older adults that I was interested in serving found it palatable, and that there was an agency and a funding source that would that would actually um, make delivering the intervention possible. So designing smart from the beginning before we even put it into a testing mode is what I'm talking about. I love that. And in your presentation, you mentioned the efficacy to effectiveness gap and, and really emphasize how designing for implementation and the way you just described can minimize that gap. 
what can an OT practitioner do to to really apply this this approach and and um, decrease that efficacy to effectiveness gap in in what they do? I think that's a great question. I think a lot of that gap is dependent on how we as researchers get the information to the, the practitioners. And so making sure, like I said, that the interventions can be adapted and delivered um, in the, in the, with the same level of fidelity and efficacy as they were tested in the kind of the research phase. So that's, that's partially our responsibility. But I think, um, I think clinicians have a couple of roles to play. One, they can, they should have a say and an opinion as a stakeholder um, about what the intervention should look like as it's being built. So I think it's a great opportunity for clinicians that are out there to join the research team as an expert in being a clinician and understanding the context in which you practice. Um, it's a gift to share that knowledge with the researchers. You want to make sure that the researchers are developing programs and projects that are going to work for you. That's one way. On the other end, once there is efficacy for an intervention, um, figuring out how to adapt it well and with fidelity to the intention of how the intervention was to be delivered. So making sure you understand what is the theory behind an intervention. Um, what if, if interventionists know uh, if OTs know the theory behind um, a, an intervention, they're really, really good at figuring out how to aim that intervention in the right direction if there isn't an answer to their question in the manual that was, to, that was provided to them. So making sure you understand the heart and soul of what that intervention is supposed to do and then figuring out how to adapt it appropriately. So maybe um, you're working in an inner city or maybe you're working in a rural community and that's not the the population the intervention was initially tested on. What do you know about your your intervention kind of target that will help you adapt what was put out in the literature to make sure you can deliver it effectively? That's what I think um, occupational therapists can do. Trust themselves. Trust themselves. They'll be good at it. Trust themselves. I love that. That's uh, such an encouraging and empowering message for our listeners. Um, and, you know, it might take a, a little bit of effort in, in expanding your knowledge on those theories, backing these interventions, but um, it, it'll pay off in the long run for so many clients and for a whole career um, of practice. I agree. I fully agree. The other thing is just go ahead and, and contact those researchers if you have questions. I think it's a gift to them to let them know if you're using their intervention and how well it's working for you. I think that helps those researchers build better products for you. You're, uh, you know, you as an OT can think of yourself as a consumer that can have important marketing information that feeds back to researchers because we would be nothing if we didn't have a really good therapist in the field to deliver what we've invented. I love that perspective. Yeah. Thank you, Susie. Mm -hmm. um, wh what is the, the home hazard removal program? How did, uh, um, this really come about and what, what really sparked your interest in developing this type of intervention? So the Home Hazard Removal Program is a fall prevention intervention. It's designed just as what, the, what the name implies to, to identify and remove um, home hazards uh, in the homes of older adults who are at high risk for falling. So we built this intervention based on um, Lindy Clemson's amazing work. Lindy's an Australian occupational therapist 
who um, developed the Westmead Home Safety Assessment. And that's the assessment that, that um, is used in HARP. What we did that was a little different than Lindy's work is we kind of expanded um, the intervention description. Um, and we were really explicit about what elements were required um, as part of the intervention. So uh, the Westmead, a good assessment is part of it but also making sure that we describe those active ingredients and the essential ingredients to the intervention that we felt were critical um, for, for its effectiveness. So, for example, it's theoretically based, so it's based on a person environment fit theory that we explicitly describe. So, for the very reason I said, so therapists who are in the field and don't have an answer to a weird question because there's always a there's always an exception to everything when you're an OT, right? There's so many, um, you've seen one, you've seen one experience that we have. But understanding theoretically what to do is first. So we teach um, the theory that we use. The other elements are um, basically a competence press model. So how you remove barriers in the home using that theory. Plus, the secret ingredient that I think OTs are not very explicit about that we use all the time in our clinical practice is strategy training. We, um, we don't just remove barriers in the home, like we don't just put a handrail in, but we teach people how to use the handrail safely and when they should use it. We teach people to turn the light on before they walk down the stairs and use the handrail, which is different than just putting a handrail in and walking out the door. Anybody can add a handrail. But it's the therapist that understands how the older adults using um, the handrail and the stairway and the lighting that makes it safer for the older adult. So making sure that we recognize there are two elements to the intervention, removing the hazard and then also teaching people the, the effective strategies to be safe at home. We also thought there were other secret ingredients that OTs do use on a daily basis, but, but aren't really captured in any of the evidence that we've seen before. So there were things like shared decision-making, which we call client-centeredness, which gives older adults the, um, we empower them to decide what changes they want to make in their home. So many of us know there's a lot of ways to change the height of a toilet seat, right? So we can, we can add a little uh, lift under the toilet seat. We can add a raised toilet seat on top of the seat. We can um, put in a new ADA accessible height toilet. Um, but allowing older adults to choose which modification they want in their home um, sometimes uh, improves the likelihood that they're going to keep using the modifications that we suggest. Um, so shared decision-making, client-centeredness, teaching people what they can expect with the types of modifications we have empowers older adults. We also use motivational interviewing strategies, so we don't tell people, you must pick up your fill dog. We allow people to sort out on their own using scripts and algorithms from motivational interviewing how to, how to make decisions about what changes they're going to make in their homes. We, we find that these strategies increase the likelihood that older adults will participate fully in the program and also will stay and will, will have high adherence um, to the interventions that we define. So our intervention manual for HARP explicitly describes all of these strategies that we deploy. So it, 
it'll, it gives therapists a really good tool to deliver the intervention no matter where they have to go um, in the U.S., north, south, east, or west, rural, urban. It gives them the strategies that we think are critical and important to be effective. So that's the piece that we've added on to HARP that gives it a little more rigor in terms of understanding what the therapist did, but also more guidance for the therapists in the field to be the really good therapists they are. We give them the guardrails so they know what's possible and they make it happen with their creative, um, amazing OT brains. I love that. And hearing you describe the HARP program, it it truly does sound amazing. Um, what did you find in clinical trials of HARP looking at its effectiveness? So um, HARP did, it, HARP was able to reduce the um, number of falls in the treatment group versus the control group, which was usual care. And these were, um, we looked at 300, over 300 older adults who were getting um, services from an area agency on aging. We took Anybody that got services from this program that had uh, that was worried about falling or it had a previous fall, we accepted them in the intervention and we randomized to them to a treatment group or to a control group. And the, the control group got any usual care, um, including fall prevention education and whatever the area agency on aging typically delivered. The treatment group got HARP, and HARP um, occurs uh, over two to three initial sessions. Um, the first session, we do um, the Westmead Home Safety Walkthrough, and we, we have scripts for how to use the Westmead and use motivational interviewing together so that older adults can can help identify their own program problems and, and, and resolve those problems. And then um, we come in over a couple of series of visits to make sure the modifications are installed. We would, in this study, we installed them for the older adults, but therapists delivering this could use any typical service that they might use, like within the area agency on aging, a handyman service, et cetera. And then we went back in after about six months to see how people were doing. We just did a phone follow-up. If they needed another visit, we went in to see them. And that was that was hard. And we followed people for 12 months. And we counted the number of falls. Every month, people would mark down their falls on a fall calendar. And we would check on them monthly, and we would verify if a fall happened, yes or no, if they told us a fall happened. And we found at the end of this study, the treatment group had 40% fewer falls in the control group, which was a pretty um, remarkable number of falls to prevent. And so that was um, that was our big finding for HARP. Um, now, we didn't have any difference in the num- number of actual people who fell, so the risk of any falls was um, a little less for her, but about the same, not statistically significant. But the number of falls, the, the overall risk of falling was, was much lower for the treatment group. Um, and then we also did something that was interesting. We wanted to know what the healthcare costs would be between these two groups. So we asked them every month, in addition to, did you have a fall? We also asked them, what healthcare services have you received this month? And we found um, we would track those for any type of healthcare service that um, the older adult received. And we found that there was um, a remarkable health cost savings for, um, so almost a, for every dollar spent on HARP, there was a $2.11 um, return on investment or cost savings that, that we had for the HARP participants. So not only 
Or are we able to make older adults safer in their homes and hopefully able to live independently at home longer? We were actually able to save the healthcare system um, valuable healthcare dollars. So it's important. We think it's important. Absolutely. Those are amazing outcomes. A 40% decrease is huge. And um, a, that sounds like a great return on investment as well um, with the HARP program. I know you mentioned the, the HARP manual earlier. Mm-hmm. In your presentation, you also mentioned a clinical practice guide as kind of tools to, to address barriers to implementation of, of HARP and evidence-based interventions for clinicians. Um, can you talk to us about these two a little more specifically? How can they be used to uh, assist practitioners in making recommendations to their clients? Sure. So the, um, the HARP manual is available. Um, people can visit our website. I bet you'll put up a link for that. Um, mm-hmm. And they can um, order the manual. And we actually, we, we just, um, we're launching this spring or this summer. We will have a, um, a training program for HARP that we're going to test. Um, we have a video-based program and we have a didactic training program. So if anyone wants to sign up for any of those potential uh, training programs. We'll uh, um, make sure we have a link on our website so interested participants can do that. Um, But we are going to uh, try our best to make sure that the the field of OT is ready to deliver HARP because I think there's a lot of interest in HARP now from um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development and um, other agencies are interested in how to implement HARP, so we want to make sure we have enough OTs. That's first off. Um, but you're right, we also have an implementation uh, guide that we've put together that will help community agencies that want to figure out how to deliver HARP in their own agency, how they can do that. So we've put together um, some tips and guides for delivering it, for example, in a um, apartment building for older adults, senior apartments and how you might go about offering um, HARP um, for everything from gaining engagement from the older adults to get them to think about their own fall risk. We have some cool activities like fall prevention bingo that we recommend that's also available on our website to, in a fun way, um, engage older adults to learn about falls. So they will be willing to um, be li- to listen to ex- occupational therapists who are interested in delivering fall prevention interventions like HARP. Um, all the way to um, the tips and, and for making sure that uh, you engage an occupational therapist as part of your team to deliver the intervention. That's all available in our implementation manual. Awesome. And I'll be sure to link your website so all our listeners can check out that training program um, and that implementation guide and uh, see some of these fun things like fall prevention bingo as well. So it's a fun thing to do on a Thursday night with your family, and we have a Zoom version. So don't worry if you can't if your family's stretched out across the country, you can still engage your um, your aunt Fern in fall prevention bingo if you're interested. There we go. Who doesn't <laughs> love catching up with Aunt Vern on a right. Thursday? <laughs> um, can we talk a, a little bit more about some of these uh, barriers? What what are some of the, you've mentioned a, a few, but what barriers to implementing interventions with older adults exist? And, and how can you, how would you recommend practitioners make sure they're, they're being addressed? Oh, sure. So um, whenever you develop a new intervention, I think there's, um, there's barriers. Um, I kind of just, find them, I, I like context, as you know, Matt. So it's the, the first barrier for me is setting. So 
I think about um, what about the setting that I'm working in would prevent me from delivering this intervention. So sometimes the barriers might be um, it's not a, an intervention that's offered typically in a setting. So what can you do? And in this case, um, the barrier, we overcame the barrier by finding a community partner. Um, I'd like to encourage occupational therapists to not only think about working in rehabilitation um, settings, but think about non-traditional places like area agencies on aging. I think those are pretty amazing places to work um, to, to deliver these novel interventions. Um, another barrier might be cost. Um, so making sure that you can fit your intervention into this, whatever payment structure is available for the setting that you're in. Um, other, uh, other potential barriers might be um, making sure that the evidence for the population that you have, maybe um, we tested HARP in a, a sample of kind of um, urban um, underserved communities, but maybe you need to consider what population you're working with and, and what are the different barriers that, that they might have and would this still work um, in the community that, that you might be interested in. So I think about setting barriers. Um, then I think about provider barriers. So as OTs, do we have the set of tools that we need in order to deliver the interventions? And for HARP, we did things, um, we've been working on this for a long time, so we developed lots of tools to help therapists. Um, we wanted to make sure that the novice therapists who are just graduating and getting ready to spread their OT wings could think and practice like seasoned therapists. So we, we created like a, pre, a clinical reasoning guide that's part of our implementation manual. Um, we, created a clinical decision analysis forms so that so it was kind of led therapists who hadn't done interventions like this before through the process that seasoned therapists use. We we applied a theory in a very concrete way to help therapists think through how they might deliver the intervention. So we, we tried to provide them with all the, the tools that they needed in order to be successful for the intervention, for example. Um, so, you know, we were worried about fidelity. Could the therapist A deliver it like therapist B, deliver it like therapist C? So we would still see those amazing returns and reductions in fall risk. And so we, we created these, the manual and, the, um, and we're hoping that this training will help get anybody that's interested in delivering HARP um, ready to deliver it successfully. So we're trying to break down barriers that providers or occupational therapists might experience. And, when I think about barriers from the OT or from the older adult perspective, you know, a lot of older adults, um, like many of us, don't think falls will ever happen to them, and they have a hard time imagining what why they might need this intervention. It's hard to get people to engage in prevention. Um, so education and outreach. Um, so we created fall prevention bingo to overcome the barrier of getting older adults to think about what their fall risk might actually be and why it might be smart to think ahead of time of what the what the uh, home hazard removal program might how it might benefit them. So um, so creating uh, so tools like that that would, would help us engage older adults. Um, and then making sure that we design the intervention itself um, to be super durable. So um, we wanted to make sure it was uh, 
uh, we went we, we went with a an opt out model. So we we teach therapists when they provide interventions that they should start with architectural modifications. You know, you can always, as we know, compensate for functional loss by you know, providing some modifications like a grab rail or maybe adaptive equipment that you can you know, bring into the home or take out of the home like a reacher or assistance. You can ask someone to help you. Um, but the most durable of those is architectural modifications. So we teach the therapists that learn heart Start with architectural modifications if you can, because it's a lot harder to not do something if it's screwed into the wall. If there's a handrail there, people are more likely to use it. So thinking about in intervention barriers like that, um, we used evidence-based approaches. So, you know, this is a complex intervention, but we took elements that already existed and were really comfortable and familiar to therapists, like motivational interviewing and client-centeredness, and built them into the intervention so they would feel really comfortable and confident delivering um, the intervention. Um, we know therapists are really creative and that they find lots of unique situations. So we created ways in the intervention that you could tailor in a standardized way so that you could offer the intervention the same way to people, but the intervention would always look different between two different interventions. So we tried to build all of those kinds of supports in for therapists to deliver the intervention in an effective way. So that's what I mean uh, by, by barriers and overcoming them. Of course, yeah, and that, I love that. Um, from a practitioner perspective, it sounds amazing to have all these types of supports built in, and it, it sounds like it, it really makes the intervention easier to, to provide um, on the practitioner and, and easier to learn to, to be effective at, at providing. I hope um, so. I hope that works that way. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned uh, the durability of, of interventions. Um, I saw in your presentation that the adherence rate for HARP is 90% um, or, or above, um, even after 12 months uh, for um, for the clients who were receiving this type of intervention. Uh, what else do you attribute such a high carryover rate to? So I think a couple of things. I think, number one, therapists, we don't do anything that people don't want us to do. So they they come to the decision as part of the hot process that this is the right intervention for them. So I think there's something about making that decision that I'm going to do this and it is my decision that that gives buy-in initially. That's really important. And then, like I said, we've structured the intervention in a way that we try to make it as durable as possible while it's there. So it's it's really hard not to use your grab bar or um, your automatic lights that come on when you get up at night um, if it's just going to happen um, passively. You really have to... Um, you know, opt out. You have to say to yourself, "I'm not going to hold on to that grab bar um, 
And there, it seems like a silly choice that someone would make because that's the, that's the choice that they made was to put in the grandpa. So we, we do have remarkably high adherence rates. Um, usually people will quit using an intervention because they've um, built enough strength or they've, uh, they might have moved. But we don't find that people, once we use this approach to be client-centered, um, we don't find they abandon their technology or their environmental modifications very often. Perfect. Um, you've already given so many awesome recommendations, Susie. I, I can't thank you enough. Um, I, I want to give you a scenario now, though. Let's say I'm a, a, I just purchased the heart manual and I, I am and going through training and want to start implementing these client-centered and effective fall prevention interventions. Um, what recommendations would you give to me or a practitioner in the same situation? So I think you're, I think you're on the right track with the first thing. Get yourself, get yourself some training, whether um, so you feel comfortable and get the manual so you know what to do. Then build a community network of partners, so a place to deliver the intervention. So um, whether it's an area agency on aging, it might be um, a community-based uh, type of independent living center. I mean, there's so many places that we know where older adults are living, um, a naturally occurring retirement community. There's lots of agencies that serve older adults that are really, really hoping to have an OT to deliver these interventions. So find a community partner because that's going to give you access to the older adults that you want to serve. And then jump right in. Um, you'll need to um, find a, a community partner that to deliver the intervention. So some type of handyman or contractor. There's lots and lots of different um, choices for making those um for finding those partners. So if you may uh, be part of a community agency, they might already have that network in place. Um, but there's always rebuilding together. You know, there's great resources on AOTA's website to find um, contractors that are CAP certified that can help you deliver the intervention um, per the HARP manual um, to help you make it all happen. I, I think that would be like my biggest thrill if if this took off and that we could get therapists out there preventing falls, it would make such a difference in the world. It would be very exciting. Uh, and it, it sounds uh, so possible and, and so attainable for, for people to do. Um, could, could you share a, a case study or, or personal story or experience of when you've seen HARP or another um, fall prevention intervention lead to a, a positive outcome for a client? Sure. So um, Raymond, one of my favorite um, um, research participants, who I guess it was pretty amazing to me that when you open the eyes of a, a person that's kind of living in their bed and hasn't been out of their home for a while and is at high risk for falling, and you can come in um, and help them understand that it's possible to emerge from your bed, hop back into a wheelchair or to um, pick up an assistive device um, and you can re-engage. So it can be anything as simple as going to a library to read books um, with a community again or to go back to church. Those are the things that are super impactful for me when somebody can um, overcome the fear of leaving uh, and re-engage in their community. That, that, that is super impactful for me. It's also pretty cool when I meet people who um, have had a fall 
and are worried about falling, but just don't have an idea of the possibilities of what it could, what life could look like. I, I, we met uh, a woman named Jane. I think I talked about her in the Learn Network, who um, had an, uh, an amputation of her leg and would have to put her leg on every day. But her clothing was located um, in the guest bedroom because she couldn't get into her own closet because her walker was too wide. And she didn't really have an idea of what would happen. And she fell because she was hopping naked through her house trying with her walker trying to get to her clothes. And when we showed her that all we had to do was take off the door of her, of her closet and turn the wheels inside um, on her walker and that she could get right in there and wouldn't have to hop through her house naked with a big picture window anymore. I mean, when she, when she's like crying with happiness that her life is going to be different and better, that to me is pretty impactful. Um, and I know all your OTSDs out there knew exactly what to do for that home modification for Jane to make it possible for her to be safe in her home. So it's possible for all of us to make this difference for older adults. This is pretty cool when you can um, flip the wheels to the inside of the walker and change people's lives. It's it's a pretty good feeling. So I hope your listeners will consider um, joining us in delivering parts. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that example. Um, I'm, I'm going to be sure to link uh, the presentation that you gave with Learn, um, as well as the, the HARP website. Um, are there any other resources or, or places where um, you'd like our, our listeners to be able to find more information related to what we've discussed? Sure. I think the CDC's website is really, really exceptional. Um, and then the um, the National Council on Aging also has lots of great resources for fall prevention. Um, so those are two places I would start for folks that are just new to fall prevention and want to learn more. Um, I also love USC's, um, University of Southern California's Home Modification Network. They have a, a really, really fine webpage with lots of up-to-date um, evidence and resources that I highly recommend. Um, the other intervention that we didn't talk about that occupational therapists um, might be interested in, there's um, there are a couple that I want to mention that OTs might want to learn about. One is called um, LIFE, and that was um, created by Lindy Clemson, the OT I mentioned from Australia, which is building an exercise program into your daily activities. So instead of going to an exercise class, um, LIFE helps build the key evidence-based interventions that are exercises that will, will build strength and balance to prevent falls into daily tasks. It's just a cool intervention that, that, that OTs are so, it speaks to our souls of, of how we should build our lives, right? You do your, you do your deep knee bends while you're brushing your teeth, or you do a tandem walk as you're walking down the hallway every day. And it's a, a really cool way to build exercise into your daily routine. I love life. The other is um, Stepping On or Matter Balance are both um, educational programs that reduce fear of falling and falls. It teaches people about their fall risks. And OTs can volunteer in their communities to deliver one element of that class. There's always a home modification element to those courses or you could um, um, partner with them to maybe even deliver some of these interventions. So OT should take a look at those two interventions 
as well as life. I wanted to make sure we didn't just talk about home hazard removal, which I think is super cool, but the range of home uh, of fall prevention interventions that HEs could deliver. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for those additional recommendations as well. Um, I'm so excited with how much awesome information and support uh, we have in this episode for our listeners. Um, and now we've come to the last question, Susie. This is our golden nugget segment. Okay. If you if you could give one piece of advice or one recommendation to our listeners, what would you say? Always, always, always ask your research participant or your patient or your client um, what's important to them first. I love that. I love that. Uh, how do you think including that question in everything you do can, can impact um, quality of care? I think that um, it will always guide you to where you should start, whether it's your research project, your treatment plan, um, or your new program. Knowing what matters to people is the, the critical piece to beginning to be a good therapist. That's perfect. That's wonderful advice. The critical piece to being a good therapist and the critical piece to developing that that connection with someone to be able to to make a meaningful impact in their lives as well. I agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Susie. It's been uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. It's been great to talk to you. I um I hope I hope we have lots of folks that have lots of questions. I'm always available to answer them. Please tell them to reach out. Absolutely. We will. Thank you again. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.